Is this thing on? Hi. We haven't heard from each other in a long while. Some things have happened since we talked. Ben took on a new role in communications with a multi-billion dollar company. So that was something. And his new company wants to disrupt their chosen market. So they decided to practice by disrupting our podcast. Ben, as you can guess, will only be able to join us sporadically from now on. That's why, as you already know, I've migrated the podcast over to Substack and started a newsletter called A Million Little Thoughts as a Supplement. In fact, if you're hearing this, that means you've already decided to become a paid listener, knowing that you can get extras like this regularly. So, good on ya. You have chosen wisely. Since I released the razor blade in the apple part two last Thursday, and you're in the middle of a discussion of the rhetorical minefield that is the scientific consensus on race, I thought I'd share this interview that Ben and I conducted last year with two scholars cited in the upcoming finale of the essay. Our guests are Nathaniel Comfort and Aya Nuruddin. Nathaniel Comfort is associate professor in the Institute of History of Medicine at Johns Hopkins. He specializes in the history of genetics and the relationship between modern genomics and the 19th century eugenics movement in the U.S. And I would say that he's a really eloquent science communicator to the general public. Meanwhile, Nathaniel's erstwhile protege, Aya Nuruddin, was just finishing her Ph.D. at Johns Hopkins when we spoke to her. She's now a postdoc fellow at Princeton. In her work, she's focused on the lived experience of black Americans over the past hundred years. And as per her Princeton bio, she's looked at how they've navigated questions of racial science, eugenics, and hereditarianism in relation to struggles for racial justice. And she's also quite a passionate and convincing thinker on how those older troubles cast long shadows of entrenched racial disparities over medicine and policy to this day. I think this interview adds depth and breadth and whole other dimensions that you wouldn't get from only reading the essay. So without further ado, here are Aya Nuruddin and Nathaniel Comfort. Aya, since you are the younger scholar here, but, you know, by no means <laughs> diminished by age, I will start with you. Oh, you want me to start? Yeah. Tell us about yourself. Okay. So I'm finishing up. After much ado, finishing up my PhD at Hopkins in history of medicine, Nathaniel is the boss of me. And I'm working on the ways in which African-Americans sort of engage eugenics and racial science in the late 19th century, all the way through to the 1970s. Yeah. So the first thing I wanted to ask you about was an essay you wrote in 2018. It's called Psychiatric Jim Crow Desegregation at the Crownsville State Hospital, 1948 to 1970. And in it, you trace three different phases of desegregation that were undergone at this state hospital just outside of Annapolis. I was moved by that story because of its tragic quality. Mm. It could have turned in better directions at any point, but always seemed to veer because of larger systemic currents back into tragedy. And that makes me <laughs> sad. So... Uh, okay, tell me the story. So in, in small it is, detail. In small detail, I won't get into the into all of the gory details because that would just eat up the whole the whole time we have. But 
Basically, it opens in 1911 as the Maryland Hospital for the Negro Insane because the state decides that there's too many black insane people and nowhere to put them effectively because of the way segregation operated in the state. There weren't really a lot of options for black psychiatric patients, um, and that was pretty true for large swaths of the country. There was only a handful of places that actually had state psychiatric hospitals that serve black patients. So Crownsville is sort of pioneering in that sense. But basically, uh, the the sort of tragedy starts right from the beginning. They, um, in order to save money on the cost of building the hospital, they actually use patient labor to build the hospital from the ground up. And then later describe this practice as industrial therapy. So patients are doing, you know, all kinds of labor, clearing land, they're doing agricultural labor, and then it's later described as, as therapeutic. Then because it's the only hospital for black patients in the whole state, every black psychiatric patient ends up pretty much at Crownsville. It quickly becomes extremely overcrowded and it's deeply understaffed because the staff is also segregated. So it's an all the hospital is all black patients, but for, for the first 30, 40 years of its existence, all of the staff that work there, all the clinical staff and otherwise are all white. And there's sort of a stigma attached to working at a segregated hospital. So there's not a lot of black, a lot of white practitioners that really want to be there. The staff ends up being primarily like Jewish refugees fleeing World War II, which was a real, is a really interesting part of the story. There's a gradual desegregation of the staff in the 1940s. The patients are desegregated in the 1960s because they're in anticipation of basically what's an, a test case from the NAACP. And so what they develop instead in 1960 as a, as a rezoning system. So it's more based on geographic location rather than um, sort of racial identity. And this sort of coincides with the beginnings of deinstitutionalization. So as mo- money is moving away from hospitals like Crownsville, it's going into the carceral infrastructure of the state. So in the same year that they desegregate patients, they open up what's what is was called the Clifton T. Perkins Hospital for the Criminally Insane, but it's it's effectively prison. And right now that hospital is actually located on a prison campus. It's a maximum security hospital now. And so desegregation and deinstitutionalization basically have these really overlapping effects. While desegregation in a lot of ways was a victory, deinstitutionalization basically dismantled the hospital gradually until it closed in 2004. And now there's a lot of local efforts to sort of preserve the grounds. There's two folks uh, in Crownsville, Paul Lurz and Janice Hayes-Williams, who are doing incredible work to sort of preserve the grounds and particularly preserve the cemetery that has, I think it's uh, roughly 1,500 patients that are still buried there today. And most of the graves don't have names on them because they uh, used to, they didn't start putting names on the graves until the 1950s. And so there's this ongoing tragedy, even now, as the hospital um, is closed, there's still people trying to like respond to this this sort of tragic memory of this hospital. You mentioned at the beginning of this this project, this Crownsville State Hospital, that it was quite it was an unusual or yeah, I don't want to say groundbreaking in that sense, but not it's not a sort of typical undertaking. And I was wondering how this project was perceived at the time, both by the people who were carrying it out who sort of came up with the idea to implement it. And if you, there is any information on how the patients at the hospital felt about this compared to the other alternatives, like how was this seen at the time? So the when they first um, open or when they first even start conversations about having a, a sort of all black hospital, it's largely because they're just patients that there's nowhere to put them and they're creating a sort of, sort of public nuisance. 
there's a handful of like private institutions that might take black patients. There's a psych ward of the city hospital, which is now Johns Hopkins Bayview, um, that would occasionally also have black patients. The Maryland Hospital for the Insane had segregated wards, or they would just put patients in tents outside on the grounds. Mm. And so there was just there was just too many patients and not anywhere to put them. So it becomes a, a sort of issue of practicality in the ways that um, people are talking about opening the hospital. And so to sort of then they have to come up with these ways to justify opening. Like, why would we use state resources on, you know, black psychiatric patients? But uh, the Maryland Lunacy Commission, as it was called, um, mm. decided that this was sort of a, a sort of public good that these people needed to be put somewhere and will justify the cost by making them do the work. So there's even in these like annual early annual reports of the Maryland Lunacy Commission, like line items where they show how much money they saved by using patient labor to build the hospital. There's okay, so it was never uh, it was never perceived as being some kind of high minded or reform oriented undertaking. It was just pure practicality. And in some sense, you're just seems to me you're suggesting that it was kind of heartless or not heartless isn't the right word, but it's not benevolent. very sort of sober minded. Yes. It's not benevolent. It's, it's not, not benevolent. Of, we're yeah. doing this out of the goods of our heart, right? Not even perceived as benevolent by the people doing it. That's a great mm -hmm. way to think about it. Yeah, it's great. sort of, well, we have this problem and here's the only way to fix it. I guess we'll have to do this. It's sort of, at least the sense that I'm getting because a lot of this is stuff that I'm gleaning from, you know, reports of the Lunacy Commission, right? There's not there's not sure. places, other places where it's it's sort of documented. And it's even harder to get at how patients sort of understood yeah. Um, well, we do find like later in the forties and, um, thirties, forties and fifties is that sometimes you'll have patients like write letters to the editor into like newspapers, like the Baltimore Afro-American complaining about the conditions. Mm. Um, and they'll, you know, sort of write a letter, smuggle it out with a relative who came to visit type of thing where they talk about how, you know, horrible a place Crownsville is. And, and they actually, some of these letters end up getting uh, published, um, in the Afro. So that's kind of one of the ways we get a glimpse at what patients think, but it's, it's really, really hard to get sort of narratives from psychiatric patients in general, but it's even harder, um, to get those kinds of narratives from black psychiatric patients. Great. Great. Cause it, my sense is around that time in American history, you do have a lot of programs that are at least in the minds of the people carrying them out couched in this kind of reform minded now trying to improve the world or in the way that they saw it at the time. But what you're saying is that this wasn't even that. Not that I can, not that I was able to discern from the records that I have. No. Great. But of course it would vary from state to state. I think I've noticed a certain pattern in your work, Aya, or maybe I should say a certain trope, as long as that doesn't sound dismissive. And I'm basing this observation on, on that article and a Lancet article you published last year. And it's namely that you place a lot of focus on people doing work outside the domain of major institutions or agencies or organizations. I don't know whether I should call this sort of work grassroots necessarily, but work done by people pulling themselves up because nobody else was going to pull them up, frankly, oppressed people, that is, 
making use of whatever resources they could and, you know, fighting the good fight and making do and even achieving tremendous levels of public good for the people of their communities in spite of massive headwinds. A am I right in drawing a kind of larger implicit moral from your telling these stories? Do you think that this is a model for social change? Or is there a prescription in there that you're making? Or why do you choose to tell the stories in the way you do? I think the reason is it's really important, I think, for me to show, um, especially and, and also with the, the other folks that I've, I've co-authored with, that these conversations about challenging, you know, scientific resi racism, resisting structural inequality, like none of this is new, right? Black people have been fighting the good fight for 400 years at this point. Um, and sometimes the way we talk about things like structural inequality or health inequality, especially, you know, in medicine, we talk about, we think that these conversations are, are new and they're not. And I think the reason that I, I sort of try to take this, you know, for lack of a better word, grassroots approach is because the people that I'm interested in, the people that I write about are showing me how they're fighting the good fight in lots of different, in lots of different ways. And it's really important to me as a scholar to, to sort of amplify those um, voices as much as I can in my own work and, and sort of use those stories to demonstrate a lot of things that are, are you know, more are visible in different ways now. But basically the sort of core, the, the sort of moral of the story is that people have been fighting the good fight the whole time. And it's because the structures that exist in this country and elsewhere were never designed to protect black people. Mm. So we shouldn't be surprised that they're not protecting black people. Mm. And I think there's this sort of surprise that, oh, structural inequality, you mean it's baked into the system? What do we do? <laughs> and meanwhile, black people have been, you know, basically screaming this at the top of our lungs the entire mm. time. And so there's a way that this story plays out specifically when you're thinking about medicine and science. But I mean, I, you could tell this story in lots of other places and in lots of other ways. Okay. So that second article I mentioned from The Lancet, it's a major work of elegantly executed anthologization. And you tell a lot of familiar stories. It's like a great, okay. <laughs> I don't know if I want to call it a, a greatest hits album, but you gather together some really familiar stories like the Tuskegee experiments on black males infecting them with syphilis, you know, unawares. And, and then a whole line we're familiar with of about from other contexts about women being sterilized. And you've shown that the burden was placed kind of onerously on women of color. So you've gathered all these strands together and you tell a remarkably coherent and enduring story and just shockingly long and recent. Just can you tell us about the sterilization thing and just how unbelievably recent some of these stories are? There's, there's so much. Um, yeah. So basically, compulsory sterilization laws are passed during the sort of heyday of the eugenics movement, where people are concerned about the unfit, sort of propagating their defective heredity. So everybody's super anxious about it, especially mm -hmm. as it involves things like racial mixing, especially as it involves things like um, disability, right? That's a, There's lots of different groups who are, who are targeted by um, sterilization legislation. What happens though, which is particularly interesting for communities of color is that, so even after these laws are sort of repealed after the second world war, because people are starting to recognize that some of this is a bad look. So even after a lot of these laws begin to be repealed in different states, um, this sort of, there's a sort of new apparatus for the sterilization of people of color that goes through public health. It goes through public hospitals. Um, it's also tied to welfare. It's also tied to the to incarceration. Um, so you have like 
the the mechanisms by which and the entities through which people are sterilized change from before and after the Second World War, but the 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 idea that certain people shouldn't be reproducing is very much itself a, a eugenic um, idea. And so what happens is is we have every so often these episodes of this realization that these ideas haven't gone away. So there was a big um, controversy, I think, in 2012 when um, women incarcerated in the state of California were found to have been dis were, have, were found to have been sterilized against their will. Um, then the majority of those were were black women and Latinx women. There was uh, a case I want to say maybe in the last five years where in Tennessee people were offered shorter sentences in exchange for being sterilized, right? Which has this sort of coercive element. Um, Dorothy Roberts and Joanna Schoen have talked about, for example, people um, having sterilization as a condition of receiving welfare. Um, there's other examples where, you know, Medicaid will cover women getting like birth control implants, um, like Norplant in their arm, but Medicaid won't cover you getting it taken out. So, you know, it sort of renders women unable to have children for maybe longer than they would like. And there's lots of these different ways that reproductive um, coercion continues even when the structures of it are, are sort of ongoing. And so there are examples from the very, very recent past. I think it, and there was in last year when women were, you know, sterilized against their will in an ice facility in Georgia, mm -hmm. right? The story is, it is on, it is ongoing. We sort of think of sterilization as something that happened way back when, but um, it still ex very much exists and it's still very much, you know, disproportionately targeting um, African-American women, Latinx women and indigenous women um, who were also sterilized through the Indian health service and against their will. Sweet baby Moses. I could go on. Yeah. Um, if, if I could jump in here, please. Yeah. Um, jump in Nathaniel. There's a, uh, there's some interesting patterns of this. If you look over time, the, the first sterilization laws were uh, targeted at men. Uh, vasectomy was developed in the 1890s and it was billed as a quick and easy uh, surgery and it, there were some ideas that it was going to that it would be a great treatment for sex offenders you know it would somehow demasculinize them as well as prevent them from fostering unwanted children and then in the 1920s when a new raft of laws will start to be passed that were constitutionally bulletproof they switched from men to women. And all of those eugenic laws in the 1920s were primarily targeted at women. Now, before World War II, the majority of people who were sterilized were actually white. There were plenty, everything I have said is true, mm. but the as far as proportions, before World War II, the most, the largest number of people uh, who were sterilized were white, white women. And since World War II, that has shifted and become increasingly targeted toward women of color. So you have this pattern of, of sterilization moving from men to white women to women of color over time. So kind of marching down some sort of social scale of you know, legitimacy or something.
I was recently reading the really excellent Carl Zimmer book she has, which is about the history of heredity and biological, uh, the sort of intersection between biology and science, as you're talking about. Yeah, great book. And he describes a period in the United States where, sort of, yeah, the term of art was feeble-minded, that people who were deemed to be feeble-minded were sort of specifically singled out for sterilization. Um, and obviously feeble-minded, it, it wasn't any more uh, sort of scientifically or objectively defined than it sounds. Um, there was obviously lots of room for sort of abuse. But is that is that generally the, the, correct, the correct way to view that as beginning as an attempt to sort of improve the intelligence of the population? Yes, uh, it was feeble-mindedness originally was um, intended to designate people who were who had just slightly subnormal intelligence. In other words, people who were at risk of passing as normal in society, right? And the uh, and so they were considered some of the most dangerous because they they. You know, they, they could be among us and we wouldn't even know it. Um, and then the term feeble mindedness became it, it, it became a catch all. And, you know, uh, as you as you say, then it becomes attached to all manner of, of, of mental disorder. And it was framed as the root cause of just about any social problem you can think of. Poverty, um, promiscuity, uh, you know, uh, crime, violent crime, you name it. Um, and so feeble mindedness became this bugaboo. You know, uh, there's this article, article, a newspaper article, I'm a clipping for, from the 1926, I think it was heredity is big problem. Right, uh, and making the case for for sterilization of of the feeble-minded, whoever they may be. Yeah, what was the Supreme Court case you mentioned, Aya? Uh, Buck versus Bell. Yeah, man, I have in my life been a fan of Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. You know, there's a certain amount of uh, praise that he comes in for with regard to free speech and all that, but uh, damn. There's one pretty awful quotation that you cite. Can you, uh, Aya, can you give us a quick, um, a, a quick explanation of that case? It's something I've actually covered with my students in my Supreme Court uh, law classes, but um, for the benefit of people who weren't in my class, uh, a brief overview of what Buck versus Bell was and why it's, you know, what the details are that strike us as being so objectionable today, or at least probably should. So uh, basically, the 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 story is that there's this woman Carrie Bug who becomes pregnant out of wedlock, and it turns out it's because she's raped. But that they don't factor that into the, to the case. But um, they this she's is a, sorry. She's a domestic. Right. right. She works. She works in the home of a wealthy family, and and it was the, actually the son of the homeowners that raped her. Yes. And so she becomes pregnant out of wedlock and for that reason, and is and it comes up in other places as well, that like that is promiscuity is, is one of these, these reasons. And again, coming back to this question of feeble mindedness, um, 
why people become sort of eligible for sterilization. And she was sort of used as a test case. And when it turned out that, you know, her, her, I think her mother might've been also institutionalized at one point at the Virginia colony for the epileptics and feeble-minded. They had great names for stuff back then. Um, that she would make this a great test case. And basically it goes to Oliver Wendell Holmes, um, goes all the way up and then he makes this famous three generations of imbeciles are enough because they also conclude that this child she has out of wedlock is also feeble-minded. Um, turns out she was fine, but. Um, and so this case was used to sort of justify other states um, having their own sterilization laws. And that's why it's such a pivotal um, that's why it's such an important case. Mm. Right. This case was the in, the Supreme Court's in for these kinds of laws to go ahead. Basically, because there had been other cases and there are other states that had ruled it unconstitutional at different intervals. Um, and so this is kind of the big the sort of nail in the proverbial coffin. Could you explain what the what the lung block was? This is a completely different context now. Oh, so the lung block. So historian um, Samuel Roberts talks a lot about this in his book, Infectious Fear, about the history of tuberculosis. Basically, lung blocks are typically areas with high rates of TB, but some, a place being designated as a lung block um, also correlated with the sort of um, socioeconomic status of that area and it's usually it's often immigrant or black neighborhoods baltimore for example where we are had you know several lung blocks um and so in addition to sort of demarcating areas of like disease density of disease um they they become areas of sort of public health surveillance and because of that they, they sort of map ideas of TB onto ideas of racial difference. So mm -hmm. because they're correlated with black or immigrant neighborhoods and they're correlated with poverty, TB becomes correlated with all of those things. And so rather than addressing the fact that these are neighborhoods that are often overcrowded, that don't often have access to, to lots of other kinds of services and addressing that, it becomes tied to the racial identity of the occupants of the neighborhood. So, for example, um, my mom's family is all from Baltimore. She grew up on the west side and we're on the east side, but her nursery school teacher lived on a lung block and basically had chronic tuberculosis for most of her life and then gave it to my mother by accident, obviously, and had spent, you know, multiple years at the Henryton Sanatorium, which was the, the colored sanatorium in the state of Maryland. She had done like three or four stints in the sanatorium and was in between stints when she gave my mother TB um, because she also lived on a lung block. So this is it, it, this is like deeply in, entrenched histories. And what Samuel Roberts does in Infectious Fear is he actually sort of maps out what, what lung blocks and how they sort of operate in Baltimore specifically, but lots of other cities had lung blocks as well. Yeah, we just finished and we didn't just, just finished in December. We released our most recent full episode of the show and we, we had the kind of running metaphor of the, of the map as a model and, mm -hmm. And then the danger of maps kind of being reified 
that is through a kind of recursive system, making themselves more real just by by the assumption that they're real. And and it seems to me like the lung block is a is a phenomenon that was uh, both literally mapped out on onto the geographical map, but also you know kind of an enforced problem. That is, it the problem of tuberculosis prevalence was self-fulfilling in in this particular case it was a problem because of the map not the map wasn't finding the problem the map was making the problem what would you say to that is there is there a real danger in systemic racism that comes from our presumptions of of problems being backwards that is that often we we're creating the problems by making them seem real uh and and essential i guess if you, if you will in ways that they're not yeah, I think I would agree with that. With the case of TB, what happens is is by the time people are sort of demarcating the lung block as an idea, the lung block is built on the idea that um, particular racial ethnic groups have innate biological susceptibility to tuberculosis. And so by our, you have a lung block as a concept working because you already believe the people that occupy the lung block are already sort of innately deficient because mm. of this susceptibility. And so it's kind of sort of a, a it's, it's reifying itself in a lot of ways. And, and just as a coda to this story, I think I mentioned that in, in an email, I was looking up this history of the lung block in St. Louis and the Washington University of St. Louis study. They noted that funding for the the rising and, and tearing out and destruction of, of an entire neighborhood and then reconstituting that neighborhood because it was, was demarcated as blighted uh, was funded with money that was procured through the, the New Deal, which is just, you know, depressing to me that one of the great American accomplishments in, in progressive legislation and policy funded, you know, the continued oppression of and subjugation of mm. populations. It's pretty sad. itself is one of those self-fulfilling prophecies. Today, look around, the people who are defending these ideas of the biological reality of race and associating you know, various different abilities or inabilities, intelligence or athletic ability or whatever with different races, the majority of the, of the argument that they use is basically just look around, it's obvious. And mm. we're trained how to look, right? They're, these are people mm. who were raised on cultural ideas of what race is, and so they can't see anything but what they were trained to see. And, and that itself perpetuates these ideas. Mm. It's part of how they last for so long. Even though the science underlying them changes, the ideas and the perceptions persist. I would, I would just completely agree. It's it, In a lot of ways, it's self-fulfilling. Because we see race, we keep seeing it, mm. right? Like, because we are always looking for it, it, we always find it. It's sort of like, you know, when everything, when you, when you 
have a hammer, everything is a nail. Right? Mm. It's a yeah. lot. It's a lot like that. But if we started, you know, looking for, you know, for example, health disparity and health inequality, if we looked for other answers to those questions, then we might get different answers. There's always the the fact of social race as a thing that exists in the world that complicates this question of of whether we can just write off race as not real. I mean, obviously, I'm not the one to say this. It's it's a lived experience that is real, and so it exists in some way as phenotypes that have been codified. It exists in sets of social behaviors and social implications and and social effects that that live with us. It's also something, though, that, I mean, it's also an identity, which is not something we want to spend much time thinking about today. But I, uh, just for, for you, you're, you're a, a Black American. It would be some kind of violence to ask you to remove that from your identity, wouldn't it? I mean, you, you wouldn't want to, uh, to abandon your Black identity, would you? I wouldn't. But the, the thing that I think we have to sort of rethink, so like, maybe if there are people because we have sort of reified race in the ways that we move through the world. And again, because we're always looking for it. It's not that we need to like sort of remove people's identities, but we need to reevaluate what we attach to those identities. Hmm. Like every time I go to the doctor with a health problem, it's not because I'm black and therefore I have like these innate black health problems, right? It could be because I, you know, have other things wrong with me. It could be because I, you know, live somewhere where there's pollution. It could be because of a whole host of other things. Um, and so what happens is, is when we sort of rely on ideas of like phenotypical race in like a healthcare setting. So for example, unless I check a box on a piece of paper, most of the time when I walk into the doctor, most people do not assume that I'm a black American. Mm. Um, apparently the scarf really throws people. Um, <laughs> it doesn't make a lot of sense, but you know, so if, if we were just, if they were relying on my appearance to make an argument about what are what I may or may not have as a health problem. We're not going to get very far if you can't even guess right. You know what I'm saying? And so even though being a black person is super important to me, that isn't like the end all be all. And it's not, it's certainly not the answer to everything, mm. especially when we're thinking about medical or when we're thinking about like med in medical or scientific terms, it shouldn't be like, oh, well, she's black. That's why X. lightning round question with you. Um, so is it wrong for doctors to use phenotypic traits as a shorthand for genetic diversity and the possibility of locating? Um, Instead of shorthand, maybe we should say shortcut. Yeah. Okay. They, I'll take shortcut. take the phenotype and, and use that to, as a starting point to draw conclusions or at least build a set of prior probabilities for what the problem may be. Yeah. What, what, what's the problem with that? Yes. I, that's a rhetorical not, question. Not cool. Um, <laughs> the problem with that is, is that you will miss things because you're a phenotype mm -hmm. is based on yep. a set of assumptions, right? So if we're saying like, if we, you, you make a set of assumptions because you perceive a patient to be black, black people look lots of different ways. 
we don't all have the same phenotype. There's lots of different flavors, if you will, for how people can look. So if you're relying on a set of stereotypes to make us to make shortcuts about someone's healthcare, you're going to miss things. And I think this contributes to why, for example, black folks are underdiagnosed with certain conditions or not often tested for certain things because we assume that black people mm-hmm. don't have those things because we're operating in an older set of, of stereotypes and assumptions. Right. Um, so, for example, people associate like sickle cell anemia with with black people. And so they think, OK, well, if a black person comes in with a certain set of symptoms, they might assume that it's sickle cell anemia. But sickle cell anemia occurs in other parts of the world. For example, um, in Saudi Arabia, for example, there's pretty significant rates of sickle cell anemia. But a lot of Saudi Arabian people don't look the way that Americans think people who are phenotypically black look. And so if you were just relying on those assumptions, you would miss a diagnosis. And ultimately that is super dangerous for people. In in 2002, a physician named Sally Sattel wrote an article in the New York Times saying, uh, titled, I am a racially profiling doctor. And she made the case for why this was a, a valid, shortcut, uh, I think is the right term, um, for for certain kinds of diagnosis. And so there is an argument to be made there. That argument is wrong. Um, and it's also obsolete, because at this point, you can you, you can easily just do the genomics, just just, you know, look at their genome and see if they have the mutations that are associated with that genetic disease. You can just look. You don't have to make those those assumptions. Yeah, I mean, the genomic revolution has changed our ability to do medicine tremendously. Um, Nathaniel, you mentioned genome-wide association studies. Maybe you could explain to us what a genome, genome-wide association study is, and then also polygenic scores. You could explain to us what those terms mean, and then why race is, is tremendously insufficient in the face of, of the abilities we now have today. Um, why it's not worthwhile even thinking about ethnicities. And, well, ethnicity, maybe. Ethnicity, maybe. You can make a, an argument with, for that. Ethnicity, ancestry. Ancestry. Yeah. Maybe we could talk about how those are two different ways of looking at things and then why those may be slight, at least slightly better, if not perfect, replacements for the idea of race. Sure. Uh, so a genome-wide association study is um, one of the major techniques that's come out of genomics. So now, instead of looking at you know um, finding a disease and then looking in that person to find you know, uh, a particular disease genes, we now have our uh, genome scientists are now using databases filled with enormous numbers of of uh, the genome sequences of, of different people. So all people who um, get their genome tested by 23andMe or who uh, have it um, or, or are part of a large a large survey like the all of us uh, survey in the United States trying to collect a, a million or more genomes, the, um, the, the UK Biobank in Great Britain. So, so there are public and private databases. All of those you know, will make their, their, their data available. And scientists now can, can survey those 
databases and they have huge numbers of you know of, of genomes in there so the 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 amount of it's so it's really big data approach and a genome-wide association study is a fancy kind of correlation um, you pick a trait that you're interested in and if that trait is recorded in the profile of of the individual you know who contributes to the genome database that you're using, then you um, then you survey all of the data in that database and look for um, genetic variants all the way down to single DNA um, nucleotides, the si single subunits of, of the DNA. Those are called single nucleotide polymorphisms or SNPs. Um, and so all the way down to that single you know, uh, nucleotide level, and look for correlations, look for patterns. So any pattern that jumps out, that 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 uh, that emerges, that that's correlated with the trait you're looking at, then um, becomes uh, is then reported as an associated. Uh, locus or, or a spot on the genome. For example, there was a, just a new paper that came out this week um, identifying 74 new loci with educational attainment, which is the current day um, term, uh, which is, you know, how far you get in school, years of schooling. And it's, it, it's in, in many ways the 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 intellectual descendant of IQ or intelligence. It's a it's a mm -hmm. it's what we use now in a sort of a, a politically correct way of of measuring intelligence. And so these but genome-wide association studies are now uh, GWAS and then polygenic score is is a statistical measure of of how strong that correlation is. Okay. So um so these polygenic scores, then you can have a score for, for say, um, intelligence, right? Or for a particular disease or for any kind of, um, any kind of behavioral trait you might want to think of. And that is taken as a, as a measure of the genetic contribution to that trait for you, okay? So it's a way of, so we're still trying to, separate nature and nurture, right? And, mm. and get the genetic component of any trait you want. And lo and behold, the, what kinds of traits are the uh, behavioral geneticists interested in? It's the same kinds of traits that the eugenicists were interested in the progressive era. Um, crime, wealth, uh, race, um, social, uh, um, you know, so social deviance, sexuality, you know, education, intelligence, you name it. It's the, so we're still interested in the same basic thing, and we have new techniques for looking at them. Mm. I would just first want to know why. Like, literally, why is this a question that people are interested in? What do, what do the people who spend a lot of their time thinking about these questions and worrying about these questions. What is the, you could say, what's the story they tell them? How do they understand their own motivations? What's supposed to be the point of it all? Uh, I mean, you could take 
an uncharitable interpretation, but like sort of like best case scenario, what's the point of that um, sort of vein of investigation? That, that approach, yeah, that's a, that's an excellent question. And um, I work with a lot of the sort of top folks in these uh, in this field currently um, on a, a bio, bioethics commission um, with them trying to explore some of these issues. And, you know, um, getting to know these scientists has been really interesting. They are, by and large, so there are some people who are doing some really bad stuff, you know, uh, and they're not on this particular commission, thank goodness. Uh, we can talk about people like Richard Lynn and so forth if we want to. But but these folks are who are the really, you know, the leaders in the field who are, are publishing the really high profile studies. They are by and large very much you know, politically progressive people. They are trying, they do everything they can to be anti-racist to um, you know not perpetuate stereotypes to do all the right things they take measures to um, bring their work to the public and make sure that it's understood that it's not twisted into into um, you know uh, misleading stereotypes and so forth they really do try to 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 to, to do those things. And yet, the goal is they are persuaded that separating out the genetic component of behavioral traits is important, that it can help us. And they make a variety of arguments, and you know, we, can, we can talk about that. There's, so, there, there's a sense that it's inherently interesting Right. Um, and I don't know, people have believed that pulling out the genetic component is inherently interesting. Um, people have believed that for 150 years. Uh, I think it's pretty clear that there's th that biology doesn't work that way. Um, but there's a there's. Um, one so one argument for it is is that it's just interesting. Two is that it's predictive, and so that if you know, and this is actually a lot of these polygenic scores are statistically very robust, even with even though they only explain, you know, maybe two or three percent of all the variation for that trait. Like the genetic component is not very large, right? Um, but yet the the data is so enormous that it becomes predictive. And so there are some frightening stories about, well, if we know how, if we have genetic, if we can predict how many years of school someone will have based on their genetics, maybe we can track them into certain educational you know, tracks and so forth, right? Um, maybe we can stop crime before it starts. Hmm. Right, um, and these I can I can quote you chapter and verse of people doing exactly the same thing every ten or twenty years back to the eighteen sixties at least, okay, and um, so prediction, um, and then a third set of arguments which I'm working hard to understand. I'm not sure that I'm persuaded by them, but 
But, but there is an argument that understanding the genetic component can help you uh, change the environments for people in ways that, that, that will be helpful or productive for them. Um, I have my doubts, but it's, uh, but, but it is a legitimate, you know, I will say that it's a legitimate argument that one could have. So those are basically the, the reasons I think they, they use. May I, a little bit of this argument was something that, that David Reich had in his book on the, the kind of genomics revolution for using ancient DNA to, to understand the movements of human populations. And then he released a, a section of that book, a small article that was essay and excerpt, uh, slightly reduced in the New York Times. And he, and he faced the same kind of furor that a lot of people have have come up for. And but this was particularly, you know, an egregious situation because David Reich is such an eminent scholar in his field, so that it, it became uh, really fraught. And I, you know, this maybe brings us back to Watson. Uh, you know, like how can a, a figure who is so you know eminent in their field? do something so problematic but but uh, but he made a lot of these same arguments in that in that New York Times article and it and it's it's even in greater detail in the in the book arguing basically that you know he doesn't want to be Nicholas Wade who I'll ask you in a moment about uh, Nathaniel but um he doesn't want to be Nicholas Wade he doesn't want to be other scholars who have who clearly have something negative that they're trying to accomplish and they're trying to get away rhetorically with uh, sneaking that in under the radar. That's, he doesn't feel like he's doing that, but he might, he might just be, I mean, like his, his motivations sound similar to what you've just said. He's basically saying, look, we're going to be able to know so much more about the genome in the future. And we already know so much now and it's growing so much. You're going to have to to grow comfortable. His argument I'm making, I'm, I'm hoping I'm paraphrasing him well, but basically right. he's saying something like we, we need to be so, we need to be comfortable with the fact that we're going to know a lot about the genome and maybe we know things about populations at some point. And then we need to, you know, we need to, act in a progressive way with the information that we have. That struck me when I was reading it as, as you said, as a repetition of a kind of old eugenicist, as a kind of benevolent eugenicist argument, like that it's, it's good, for, good for the people mm. who are, um, you know, that we now, now that we have this information about them, we can help them. We're, we want to be benevolent to these, to these people. It sounds in some way reductive. And I don't like, where, I don't like his line of thought. Yeah. Uh, what do you guys say to that? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a fourth answer to Ben's question, which is there is this persistent belief that your DNA, your genes, your heredity is somehow the essence Mm. of you, that it's Mm. the most fundamental essence of who you are. DNA is the secret of life, right? And... You know, and and so there's this belief. I mean, certainly DNA studies have have told us, or have already told us a lot about human evolution, so forth. Um, you know, so ancestrally, it's it, it it can be very informative. But I have a real problem with the notion that it's somehow the essence of hmm. me. The mm. you know the um, and, and we can talk more about about what that means depending on how interested you are but but that idea of of your DNA as your essence is I think at the 
bottom of this. And this is why, this is where Reich, I, I would say, has a blind spot because he believes that. And, he, and, you know, a lot of people take it as simply self-evident. Who would possibly question that? Uh, and one of the things I'm looking at in my next project is, is how that idea was built socially over time and very consciously. Um, and so, and what makes, that's why Rice says, well, I'm, I'm not problematic. I'm just trying to understand the, you know, the true biology. And it's also why critics um, c come after him is, you know, his critics are mostly people who look at the social context of this stuff, see the, the you know, the, the old cycles, you know, returning again in his words, see the implications, the things that tend to, to be consequences of this kind of thought and, um, and, and say, yeah, don't, you're doing it again. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, did you want to jump in? Yeah, so totally agree with that. I think I would add to that, especially when we're thinking about race, is the danger is, is that we become deterministic about what race means and what it translates into and in how people sort of navigate the world. If we think we can boil somebody down to a set of characteristics that are tied to their racial identity, we're, we're sort of back at you know, square one, and we've, we've been to this rodeo before, and it did not go well, right? And I think there's this, like what Nathaniel was saying, this assumption that your DNA is, is fundamentally who you are, and that if we can, you know, alter you at the fundamental level, we can predict, we can prevent, we can do all sorts of things. And that's exactly what the eugenicists 100 years ago are, I think they can do as well. Right, like we're constantly just using these sort of sort of new techniques, new technologies, to answer the questions that eugenicists were asking a hundred years ago, and as long as we keep using their questions instead of coming up with new ones, we're going to keep kind of coming into this self-perpetuating cycle. Nice. Can, I, can I offer one one modicum of of charitable thought, um, perhaps? That's your thing. We should make it clear. That's that's Aaron's thing. Yeah, that's my charity. jam. <laughs> not my thing particularly. That's, that's a good thing. I'm, oh, well, it's I'm, good I'm to cool be charitable. So my 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 charitable yeah. thought is, um, uh, he, we want control, right? We want to be able to control things. We want. I mean, that 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 might not be charitable, but but it's mm -hmm. it's natural for humans to want to be able to to understand and parse things and uh, and um, I mean, it doesn't seem irrational. I mean, the motivation in the end is that is that, isn't it? Right? I mean, we want to be able to, to control, control yeah. things. So that's not. That's what the eugenicists. Said yeah, yeah, too. yeah. Of course, of <laughs> like course. That's this is the point, right? Like they were like, if we can control for these things, like a lot of these. This is the thing that I think, um, and Nathaniel and I talk about this like all the time. But like, this is kind of why it's so important to study the history of eugenics. We kind of have this vision that it's like eight guys in a dark room being like, "Tee hee hee, how can we hurt poor people?" Right, but it's actually, there's a lot of people, not all, because some of these, some people are just straight up evil and yeah. you know, that's a, another kettle of fish, but there are a lot of these eugenicists who think, wow, crime is awful. Poverty is so terrible. What if we could control, predict and prevent it? And if we could use heredity to do those things and we can do this scientifically and objectively, 
wow, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to save the world. Right. Like, and this is not to say that, you know, all eugenicists are great humanitarians, <laughs> but this is, this is undergirding a lot mm. of eugenic thought, right. Yeah. That if we can or, just, if we can get down to the, to the, the nitty gritty, if we can get down to the bare bones, if we can get down to the fundamentals of human existence and fix all of these problems we observe in our world at this level, what a service to humanity mm. that would be. There's a lot yeah. of that that's baked into the, into the ways that a lot of eugenicists think. Again, not all, right. and also or, not excusing a lot of the heinous things that happen, but it's important to understand that this is part of the ecosystem that eugenicists are existing in, right? That it's not just absolutely. evil, you know, people twisting mustaches in dark corners, right? Like it's not a bunch of cartoon <laughs> villains. That this is like the same way that we're thinking about this now. Well, if we could use, you know, DNA, if we can use polygenic scores to to improve educational outcomes for poor kids well that's that's a great thing right mm -hmm. and because we're still we're trapped in this premise that we have to alter things on individual at human in at the biological level of human beings instead of addressing the structural environmental and socioeconomic conditions that people mm -hmm. live in yeah because that's a harder conversation to have yeah and i was gonna say um to be less charitable uh and this this has always been my kind of um, what I sort of infer from the way these things tend to get shaded. And again, I'm less being less charitable. It strikes me as an excuse to give up on solving certain problems, right? As, well, it's genetic. It's a shortcut, right? It's that well, you can't make the you know the the educational attainment among different races is close enough, and we don't need to do anything else about it because even if we tried we couldn't right it's 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 an excuse to just wash your hands of the problem that you maybe for other reasons don't really feel like addressing um so that's my less charitable Ab absolutely yeah no ab absolutely that happens you know that has happened repeatedly over and over through time you know again it's not everyone but that is definitely there and another thing that that it does is shift the responsibility from the from the state or in whatever way you want to consider it onto the individual bingo right it it shifts the responsibility and the, and that can go hand in hand with what you were with what you were saying then is well you know we need to it's it, it's it's inherent in those people the responsibility is theirs if we can fix them genetically great but mm. but otherwise there's not much we can right. do we've come as far right. as we can right. exactly and when we rely on these like this sort of genetic determinist way of thinking about problems this is also when we go down the sort of more heinous track Right. This is when reproductive control becomes really appealing in a lot of ways. Well, if this is genetic, <laughs> yeah. then we have to stop X group of people from reproducing. Yeah. That's where those kinds of logics come from. Right. That's why, you know, in the more recent iterations of sterilization and reproductive control, it's tied to incarceration. Well, we know these people are mm -hmm. criminals. So, of course, why should they reproduce, mm. right? Like, this is exactly where those logics lead us. When we think about folks that are undocumented, this is why people were being sterilized in ICE facilities, right? This is why women who are on welfare are, you know, have their, their reproduction or lack of reproduction tied to their ability or to continue getting other kinds of benefits from the state, 
because we have already decided that on some level, these groups of people are biologically unworthy and therefore they become socially unworthy as well, right? This is exactly where those continuities are. And even though it looks really different from the ways we're taught, people talk about these things, for example, in progressive era, in the progressive era United States, the logics just play out in sort of these new and ongoing iterations. This is why particular groups of people become targeted for certain kinds of control. This is why particular groups are always considered eligible and are always considered, you know, deserving of particular kinds of control because we have, as a society, have already sort of written off and decided that on some level groups, certain groups of people are unworthy. And instead of saying, what are, what are the ways we can address structures so that we don't have, you know, high rates of poverty? What are the ways that we can address literacy and educational mm -hmm. attainment? What are the ways that we can, you know, address all of these other issues, especially, you know, from the, from the, from the level of the state? What are the ways that the state can respond to those things is a much, much harder thing to do than to sort of just decide that yeah. certain groups of people aren't. Right. Especially if we attach those things to their fundamental sort of basic biology. Yeah. Even when those even when those factors and here I'm going to go off on a little bit of a rant, even when those factors, well, those problems are not particularly difficult problems to solve. They're actually very well understood, like, for example, exposure to air and water pollution. Very, you know, in principle, an extremely simple problem. Right. Maybe maybe not easy. Maybe not easy to resolve, but it's simple. You understand it. We understand it very clearly, and it has a very big impact. And we know that it affects certain people in certain locations because that's where the pollution is. And if you just got, you know, gave the people living there, you know, the benefit of clean air and clean water that other people in other places have, you know, then let the system run for 30 years and see if maybe all of this stuff that you attributed genetics was actually just air pollution, right? Is, I think it would be worth a shot, but for some reason, uh, <laughs> nobody, well, I don't want to say nobody's interested in that, but for some reason, people are more interested in looking into the genome and trying to see if they can find a way to avoid cleaning up the air and water. And well, may I be pessimistic? See, what you're proposing would require moving capital from other things <laughs> into that. And that we could we couldn't have that, could we? I mean, you could. In I, certain I think that's really important. We just don't. There, for whatever reason, it's not a priority or hasn't been a priority in that way. Right, and also the groups that are disproportionately affected by things like a lack of clean air and a lack of clean water are groups that, like, this is what Robert Bullard, for example, talks about in his formulation of like environmental racism. Mm -hmm. Like most of the people that live in like Cancer Alley, right, right. Like, are poor, they're black, they're otherwise marginalized. Right. And that's why. That's, so those folks right. are not a priority, right? Because we've already it's recursive. That's why the pollution is there, right? Because we look, they do the things that they do. Yeah. Well, no, because we because the people who produced the pollution didn't want it near them and so they put it near somebody else right, so they yeah exactly um can i it's and so I, I i think one thing that i just want to insert here is that, that i think is really important is that the things that you're which is the economic side of this um the the things that you were talking about ben are the straightforward kinds of solutions those cost money whereas Putting look whereas genomics makes money. Okay, and these are done. You know, the private companies are have are invested in this, and this has been true of philanthropic funding for science for you know well over a hundred years. Uh, 
So one reason for this kind of genetic essentialism is that you can make money from it. Mm. And the kinds of, of structural solutions that you're talking about cost money. Right? Yeah. The government has to pay. It, somebody can make and, money from them. But. You know, some... Some of it, some yeah, there are ways for sure. But you know, on, on but on the macro scale, some of this can be explained by by do, dollars and cents. Can I ask one? It's almost like we need to re fundamentally rethink how we structure society. Yeah. Can I tie uh, one more like question? That. It's on? almost like that. Can I tie one more question on? Because Nathaniel, you were talking about these polygenic yeah. scores, and it's also something that comes up a lot in in um, Carl Zimmer's book. Uh, on heredity. Um, and it's a question I wanted to ask Carl Zimmer, but I read the book after we interviewed him, so I didn't get a chance. So l let me ask you. Yeah. I, I, I read that section for him, so. Okay, yeah, great. Ask away. Um, so you have basically the way that I understand this, and I did some time in molecular biology and some time in statistics, but that was some time ago. Um, cool. So you have this characteristic like educational attainment really broad sample of um genomes from different people all throughout your population you're studying and you go through and you process all those genomes and you're sort of looking for genes that are associated with this trait that you're interested in mm -hmm. like educational attainment and my question is when people sort of come up, when people build those statistical models that say, oh, there's whatever you said, 74 loci that are associated with educational attainment. How does that compare with um, polygenomic correlation with things that we know are just obviously not biological? So you could take, for example, zip code, right? Is there a when you run these same models, but instead you sort people by zip code and then look at their genomes? Do you find an equivalent amount of association of, you know, oh, this gene codes for people who want to live in this zip code? Because at the end of the day, we get these 74 genes. And to be blunt, we don't know what the fuck they do. We have no idea. They just popped out of this huge set of data that we have when we started right. sorting by this certain trait we were looking for. We have no clue. We have no theoretical reason to think they have anything to do with intelligence. They just kind of popped out. And I my question is, yeah. wouldn't, wouldn't that be true of any characteristic? Wouldn't it be true of favorite color or the first letter of your middle name, right? You'd find some right. association. So, so, so uh, I was at this uh, meeting of this bioethics group that includes bioethicists, a couple of historians, a bunch of, of genome types, you know, people who are doing this kind of behavioral genetics. And I had a, a, a whimsical question, um, which relates back to an old uh, satirical blog post I did years ago. There was one of the, the, um, the, the, the sort of uh, poster boy eugenicists of the 19, of the progressive era, 19 teens and 20s, was Charles Davenport, the director of the eugenics record office at Cold Spring Harbor, arguably the leading eugenicist of the time. And he wrote, uh, there's a famous article that was, this was pointed out by uh, the historian Garland Allen originally, that um, he, he wrote a, did a study 
on um, discovering the genetic trait of thalassophilia, which was which is literally love of the sea. And it was a trait that he found to be to run in families of ship captains. Right. And um, that that and he hypothesized that it was um, that, that they these groups tended to uh, th these people tended to group together and live together because they would live. Um, they wanted to they all had the same desire to live in a place where there was good access to the sea, you know, and to boats and things they could go out on. Right. And to us, it's it, 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 it's absurd, right? It, the, it's an obvious mistake of, of cause and effect. These, you know, um, if there is any hereditary thing, you know, there it's because things run in families. You know, t sons tend to do what their fathers do to to some extent, right? And did more back then. So it's a it, it's it's a kind of a a, a running joke among <laughs> this group of historians of eugenics, uh, of which I and I are part, about philosophia and um, and and so I asked if so it's something that's obviously not a genetic trait, right? Um, and so I asked these guys. Uh, so if you had a if the data were there in the in 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 the database in you know uk biobank or or whatever the poly um 23 and me and you decided so i'm interested what what counts as a trait i said if you if you looked for associations for thalassophilia could you find them could you create a polygenic score for for thalassophilia and they said yes Of course. Really? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Right. Uh, you know, card carrying, leading behavioral geneticists. Mm -hmm. Did you explain to them what that was first? <laughs> kind of. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> did you did you explain it to them in a way that, that made know. it seem like, like it was plausible to explain, or or did you did you mislead them? Nah. I I just. Uh, I, no, I did not mislead them. I, I said very straightforwardly, there, there was this guy, this eugenicist who had this idea of a trait for, of a genetic trait for love of the sea that was yeah, present in Yeah, that's enough information. Yeah, yeah. To see that's um, absurd. Right? <laughs> and, 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 you know, and could one, and I might have even said that, you know, it's sort of patently absurd if you look, look at it. And, and then just ask them, could you, could you find that? Could you create a polygenic score for that? Yes, we could. So you can, you know, it, it, what counts as a trait, right? Mm. Traits themselves are socially constructed. We decide what a trait mm. is. These are not natural categories. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, so but 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 how little? <laughs> how little? This is very yeah. Of course, it's just it like, is disconcerting. If you can have a polygenic score for a made-up thing, yeah, it's a little bit. Then I don't have a like. I feel concerned about how we're throwing around the data now. This is yeah. Well, it's, I mean, it's years of anything. schooling. Okay, that's you know. Well, but, how much? Yeah, and this is. Crime. I know just enough. I know just enough statistics to be worried about what happens no when you that. have huge amounts of numbers and really sophisticated models and particularly the problem and just something that i try and make everyone not 
particularly sort of into statistics aware of, um, because I teach English classes after all, um, these are not all statistics, statistics students, is when you go looking into data but you don't have a theoretical reason to expect something, right? Like if you're um, studying a particular birth defect and this child is lacking a certain hormone and you happen to know the part of the genome that codes for that hormone and you go looking for you know a discrepancy there okay fine but if you're just throwing a bunch of data at the wall something is going to stick right and then to turn around and say ah that's stuck that that proves whatever my point is that's not just it it, it violates the basic assumptions that the statistical tools are built on and so your statistical inference is invalid and yet most a lot of people who use these statistical tools don't really appreciate all of the assumptions that are going into the models they're creating and then they come up with conclusions that are just obviously silly except they're backed by complicated math that nobody feels qualified well, can to i challenge. just ask this question this way right. like what's the on, on my on my very uh, I, I just Please. have one thing to just amplify, if I may. Um, ben, the, on the, the very first day of my undergraduate course in biostatistics, she told us biological st statistical significance is not biological significance. Mm. Right? Great. You can have statistical significance, and that does not necessarily tell you anything. So that you're kind of answering my question. This is this is rule number. You're one. kind of answering my question here, Nathaniel. Yeah. May I ask, um, what should we do with the p value? Yeah. <laughs> right, like like what good is it if 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 it's not if it's not a corollary of biological significance, or of any significance? That is like what what are statistics doing for us? This like has it, implications it for everything. It might be you you. It might be you have to, you know, one possibility is is that it then guides you to go look at the biology, right? And and to see if it if there is biological significance there. You can't assume it. It might be a lead, but it's not. Proof, well, is that any different right? than talking about race? And the other, uh, like that's also not a particularly good guide. <laughs> say it. Yeah, yeah. There you go. There They're you go. They're both equally bad. Circle. If we, yeah. bringing, bringing statistics to race doesn't mm. add any value, basically. It, so far, it has not worked out well. Has not worked out well. Can I? Yeah. Is there a way that and theoretically somebody could make it work? Could be. I don't, it's not looking good right now, though. I, I will say that the behavioral genetics community is moving away from the term race. In the years after, immediately after the Genome Project, the use of race in the biomedical literature skyrocketed. And that was the context in which Sally Sattel wrote that article about I am a racially profiling doctor and so forth. Today, you know, in the 2020s, they are moving away from that. And the uh, we're debating that in, in this bioethics group I'm in right now. And we're talking about the term ancestry which is the preferred, generally the preferred term uh, in behavior genetics now. And we're, we're discussing whether that solves, you know, what problems that solves and what problems it doesn't. But it's certainly better than race. And so I want to give credit to the, the behavior genetics community there and, and point out there are African-Americans in this field 
who are making these cases and helping. You have a broader set of, of intellectual and, and social training and, and conditioning now entering into the scientific logic, the scientific decision-making process, the definitions and terms and concepts that we use. And I think that is is definitely improving the field. Nathaniel, I have you on the phone now, as it were, and on the Zoom, and I have the chance to ask you about this particular excerpt from a text that, that you wrote in 2014. And I have taught this, this particular text in a course. And first of all, I love it because it's you know rhetorically clever, but it, it, it almost feels like it's being too charitable now from my, my 2021 perspective. Uh, so, so let me ask you about this, this text. I'm going to, sure. if I may, I'm just going to read it. It's not very sure. long. So here's the text you wrote, um, race is certainly real. Ask any African-American. It originated long before the science of genetics as a set of phenotypes and stereotypes. These correlate with haplotypes, meaning clusters of genetic variation. In this sense, race is genetically quote unquote real, but those correlations depend on judgment calls. Wade cites population genetics studies that identify three principal races, Caucasian, African, and East Asian. Elsewhere cites five adding Australian and Native American, or even seven splitting Caucasians into people from Europe and the Middle East and the Indian subcontinent. A study in scientific reports this year identified 19 ancestral components, including, uh, including rather Mozabites, Kalash, and Uyghurs. Paleogeneticist Fanchipebo and others have revealed the underlying gen human genetic variation to be a series of gradients. Whether and how one parses that variation depends on one's training, inclination, and acculturation. So race is real and race is genetic, but that does not mean that race is quote unquote really genetic. First of all, again, let me let me praise the rhetorical uh, play the happening at the end of that of that text. Um, how charitable were you being in this text that you wrote uh, with people who might interpret that as as raises and 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 that they were speaking in good faith? Were you really um, defending them, or was that just just you being nice? I, I don't think I'm being charitable at all. Um, okay. the, so elsewhere in the article, I write debates over the genetic reality of race are not mainly scientific but social. So, you know. It, it, as you're as you were saying, you can cherry pick a genetic profile so that it proves, quote unquote, the existence of race. But where you draw your boundaries depends on a whole bunch of arbitrary decisions. Um, are you are you looking at continents only? Are you is water a barrier or a thoroughfare? Right. You look at the Indian Ocean was a trading zone, all, you know, what we would consider a whole lot of different races, all mixing, mixing up genetically. Um, where does Asia begin? Right. Uh, how many races are there? How black is black? All of these questions, you know, none of these are natural categories. And the, the, the world is analog 
the world is analog. It's, you know, it varies smoothly. And we're trying to digitize it to impose these categories. And you can impose boundaries in in a way that is clear and, and reasonably objective in the sense that, you know, years of schooling is objective. You know, there is an, there is a, an unambiguous answer to that in most cases. But the categories you choose and where you draw those lines are conditioned by society, conditioned by how we're, how we're brought up, what we're trained to think, what we're trained to see. You know, for years, uh, scientists thought that the, 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 the standard was uh, uh, scientific knowledge was that humans had 48 chromosomes. And every time you looked in a microscope, you know, a trained geneticist would look at human cells and you would count the chromosomes and you would count them one, two, three, four, five, up to 48. And then in 1956, a pair of scientists did, uh, looked at them a new way and said, oh my God, I think there's only 46. And suddenly scientists, you're right. And now they actually saw 46, right? So you're trained to see in certain ways. And just Mm -hmm. to add to that too, even just the ways that we name these categories are also culturally, socially like contingent, right? Like what it means to be black in the United States is not the same as what it means to be black in Brazil, is not the same as what it means to be black in South Africa. Or in India. But if we but we use the term black or right exactly or in India, we use that term very capaciously, right? But if we try to take that, like we try to take blackness as an idea and map it onto these clusters, when the clusters are different, but we're calling all of these things black because we have it a set of cultural ideas about what it means to be black, we're actually we're going to miss the actual you know genetic variation that we're actually looking for because we want to flatten it into these categories that we recognize Mm. already. Yeah. Yeah. So what I mean in that quote is that race is real. It's socially real. It's culturally Mm. real. You know, we recognize that I identifies as a, as a black woman, as an African-American. And so it's real in that sense. It's genetic in the sense that there are genetic variations that correlate with those things. And you, but it's not really genetic. What I mean that is that that does not mean that the the essence of who you are and the essence of race can be boiled down to, to your genes. Mm. It doesn't mean it's a natural category that can that is in your genes, or a stable category, mm. or a, even a stable category. Exactly. Because like if somebody were to, you know, map all my genes, they would see things that are not just correlated with people, people who are of African descent, because there's a we got a whole mishmash in here. (laughs) Right. And so if you just base it off of what I look like phenotypically, then you would miss like other things Mm. because, you know, doing a little digging into the family history. In addition to being a person of African descent, I have Scandinavian, French, Irish and English ancestry right but you wouldn't know that based on looking i mean the freckles kind of give it away but (laughs) you know like because even to be a black american person is not a stable category Mm. right right but if we try to map genetic variation onto a static set of stereotypes 
you're like the core, it doesn't, you know, sort of map neatly and you miss things. So it's like real because I experience it, but it's not it. So they use self-identified race, you know, to, as a way to get around that. But that's problematic too, right? Because those are, as you say, those are non-stable categories. It's funny. Can yeah. I make, can I draw an analogy? We just talked about uh, in our last, no, two episodes ago, uh, we had a long focus on baseball. Uh, sometimes we talked about baseball as it relates to, you know, kind of integration and race, but also baseball as a means of thinking about uh, statistical analysis. And, and it's, it's interesting for a long time, you know, to, in order to classify pitches, we would just rely on, on the kinds of pitches that a baseball pitcher would throw and they self-identified. But at some point we started using these, uh, we now have technology called StatCast that just, I mean, the, the baseball stadium is this kind of crazy panopticon of of cameras everywhere that are that are doing still digital that is it's not you know like we have the kind of infinite regress of time that is it, we, we it sees things at a, at a at a higher number of digits than we could ever see but it's still you know it's still seeing images uh you know bit by bit and it's it's successfully analyzing movements of pitches and um and then it's doing basically the same kind of thing we're doing with with population analysis it's do, giving kind of clusters of clusters of movements and then it identifies among those clusters kinds of pitches and then we're giving them names basically we're saying okay that's a slider that's a curveball that's a fastball because it's behaving in a way that that you know matches our acculturation if if you will mm -hmm. um but then they're becoming more codified they're becoming more real through this kind of statistic the, these machines are making it so that that these categories we had before are not they're not as uh, they're still granular, but they're at a granular level that only these machines can see because they're more precise than we are. Uh, so they're becoming more, more and more codified as we become, as we're becoming more, uh, capable technologically, are we becoming more the categories that, that we've put ourselves into? Really? Yeah, I think that's a pretty good analogy, you know, and, um, the, the ideal among the genome folks I talk to who deal with um, ancestry and so forth is to, the ideal is to narrow it down and not to deal with um, socially constructed categories like race, but to be able to, to do something in a more objective to identify geographical um, area, you know, specific geographical areas that relate to ancestry and ethnicity, right? Mm. Which, which is better. I think that that is better. And there are some scientists um, who are who are working to develop ways of of using genetic ancestry in ways that are actually productive for minority groups. So one thing, you know, is like the vast majority of these databases are from European Americans. So they tell you much, much less um, about, you know, whatever you ask of them, disease, risk, behavior, anything, if you are African American or, in, you know, uh, Native American or, you know, Hispanic or anything. Um, because of population uh, participation rates, or why, why is that? That just yeah, the, the yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, like a lot of them come from Twenty Three and Me, and those are, mm. you know, mostly kind of, of 
you know, middle and upper middle class people who are, you know, overwhelmingly white in this country because racism and, you know, um, and so forth. But, you know, I want to point to work like um, like that of Shawniqua Callier at uh, George Washington University, who's who's doing some some really fascinating work on um, to use genetic ancestry on uh, of, of of people of African descent in ways that are actually productive for those for those people. So you know there are ways of doing it right. Um, and I think that you know as as critics of this field, critics in the broad sense of people who you know look at this work and think about it and analyze it and try to put it in context, um, one of the, the one of our goals ought to be like we're not trying to shut this work down necessarily, right? We but we want to channel it into constructive directions. We want to try mm-hmm. to 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 squash the 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 genetic essentialism and the arbitrary categories such as race and so forth. Um, and and to encourage the more enlightened, more productive, more socially um, beneficial uses of this knowledge. Hmm. Still sounds dangerous. <laughs> uh, uh, in it, it, yes, I agree with you. I agree with you. Um, but there are some folks out there who are are doing some good work. I want to mm. give them credit. A, a lot of this stuff still still really concerns me. I'm I'm really not convinced by the um, by the by the nature nurture dichotomy. I don't mm. think biology works that way. But I do want to leave open room for the possibility of using genomic data in ways that are socially constructive. Mm-hmm. And I want to I want to understand that work better than I do, and I want to you know um, engage with those folks who sincerely are interested in understanding the social context of genetics. Right there are there are people who who will talk to people like me. Right there and mm-hmm. and and um, and and there are there there are some people who really want to engage. There are some people who say they want to engage, and then when we do, they go yeah. But there are <laughs> some people who who really do engage with the historical issues and want to understand that and want to keep their science, you know, on the right side of history, as it were. Mm. And just to like also piggyback on that, I think what we're seeing now, especially like Dr. Shaniqua Collier is a great example of this, right? But there are lots of people who are trying to do this work and they're not often given, you know, the opportunity that work is not often what is put forward as an example of like, this is how we can do this stuff right. So Shaniqua Collier is a great example, Keisha Ray, who um, has like the Black Bioethics Toolkit, right? There are people who are thinking about these questions of like race, inequality, genetics, genomics, all of these things together, right? But their, their work is not often amplified. Yes. But it's out there. Yeah.
Thank you so much to our guests, Aya Nuradine and Nathaniel Comfort. I would be remiss if I didn't plug Nathaniel's upcoming work, a biography of James Watson, one of the co-discoverers, along with Francis Crick of the Double Helix, whose long and storied career has also been a sordid one as he's become a kind of pariah among scholars and journalists for his really weird public statements on genetics, race, and intelligence. Nathaniel's using his story to stage a broader examination of heredity. Maybe we can interview him again when that book comes out. I hope you've enjoyed the special episode. I'll be releasing more of these occasionally. In fact, next week I'll be releasing my full conversation with Steve Metcalf to coincide with my essay, Best Behavior. But don't worry, season three is in production, and I'm really excited about it, so I'll keep you up to date. Meanwhile, please consider becoming a paid subscriber on Substack, where I'll be releasing more and extended versions of such interviews for subscribers. And I'd love to hear your feedback on this episode or one of the essays. So write in the comments, and I'll write back. The podcast is online at amillionlittlegods.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle's at Aaron Gowan, and the podcast's is at AMLG Podcast. We're on Instagram amlg underscore podcast and you can find us on facebook at facebook.com slash a million little gods for ben Federson and his solid state batteries i'm aaron gowan talk to you soon